WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. Live from WDET, it's the Metro, your go-to source for stories driving Detroit's news, arts, and culture throughout Southeast Michigan. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. Today on the program, we'll hear how northern Michigan businesses are adapting to climate change, especially after learning ice cover on the Great Lakes were at an all-time low this year. Yeah, but first on the Metro, Detroit City Council has just delayed a vote that we were expecting this week on whether to approve incentives for part of the $3 billion Future of Health development project around New Center. It's one of the latest projects taking advantage of tax incentives the city offers to try and spur development in the city. But are these efforts working? This is one of the questions Detroit City Council tasked the Citizens Research Council of Michigan with analyzing. How is the city's development practices working? And they did that assessment in a recent report, taking a look at has economic development efforts so far worked to date in the city? To learn more, we're joined by Eric Lufer, president of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. They recently released that first of two scheduled reports with their analysis. Eric, welcome to the Metro. Great to be with you. Yeah, so we got into a little bit here, and it's real timely to get into this right now with the delay in the vote. Now, I know that's not the only thing you were looking at, but let's just start from the beginning. What did City Council task you with doing in the report? So City Council, uh, on their own, and of course hearing from citizens, are asking questions related to economic development. Do they need to continue providing these tax abatements? Uh, Can businesses come in and and foot this bill on their own? Why are these tax abatements necessary? And also for the DDA downtown, uh, they have what's called a tax capture with new growth. Is that necessary? Can, can, you know, have have they built up downtown enough that we can just let that good momentum go forward and, and don't need to continue that DDA and everything it's been doing. Yeah, it's something that we've been doing a, not, a lot now. Uh, Detroit City Council, and we'll get into this a little bit, has only certain levers it can pull to try to spur development. One, as you mentioned, tax abatements, right? Effectively cutting checks to people saying, hey, you don't have this tax burden if you build here. The Detroit Development Authority you bring up there, well, they'll capture excess amount of taxes over a certain amount of property taxes and use in the area. All things we've been thinking about a lot. So what was your overall take takeaway in your research? So again, there's two parts to it. So on the tax abatement side, what we found is that the the costs are higher for the most part for businesses coming in. Costs are higher to construct and operate in the city than the projected revenues. So this is why they're asking for a tax abatement, right? What can you do to rein in that cost? Uh, Part of that is just the simple cost of being in the city it's common across all cities, but Detroit's a bit unique. It has very high property tax rates. Not the highest in the state, but very high property tax rates. Part of that's the city's own fault. It levies its tax at the highest rates. It has debt millage. But part of it is the fault of other jurisdictions that has no control over, specifically the schools that are levying a debt millage of their own. Regardless of the cause, that's a high cost, and you have the community benefits agreements and you have the stormwater mitigation 
and you have the local hiring requirements. All those add cost to being in the city. On the other hand, there just isn't demand that much demand to be in the city where you're talking downtown or out here in Midtown or other parts of the city. There's good things happening for sure, but people just aren't you know paying that premium yeah. to be in the city, so it doesn't even out. And then on the uh, for the DDA, clearly you can make a case that after forty some years the DDA has served its purpose and and we can move on, but it's not that easy. The DDA has issued debt, bonded indebtedness, and pledged that new revenue coming in, that right. capture it's going to be uh, bringing in to repay that debt. Yeah, this is one of the things you, you get worried about with these things. As folks get used to these tax capture efforts, the DDA or the uh, transformational brownfield, the idea of being able to use abatements, people get used to that. And one of the things that you mentioned in the report that we saw was just getting into the overall issue, population being a really huge factor that's driving this. How much does uh, population factor into the struggles that the city has with economic development? So anytime you're trying to bring a company in, they want to know, is the workforce there, mm-hmm. right? Are, can they hire people to do the job that they want to do? So clearly in southeast Michigan, the greater area, there's a lot of talent. But if you're trying to draw from the local talent, then the fact that Detroit has lost so much population and so much of the population has not achieved high education levels it means if if you're trying to bring in a skilled workforce, that's a challenge. Yeah. We we want to hire local De- Detroit talent. The mayor wants that. City council wants that. We we can all agree on that. But if that's going to require extra training, that adds extra cost. All right. Well, let's look at some of these other issues before we get into potential solutions. You mentioned in the report that uh, some of the issues that Detroit's dealing with can't be resolved solely through tax policy, talking about unemployment rates, poverty, racial disparities in income that we've all been trying to deal with, low levels of education attainment. Given these challenges, how do you think it's best for us to assess where things like tax abatements or tax yeah. <laughs> increment financing are factoring into our decisions on tax policy, or should it be focused somewhere else? How much? What should we be looking at with our tax policy discussion? Well, if you go back to the 1970s when these laws were created, they were clearly created to try to offset the fiscal challenges, the, the these types of things, right? Detroit, other cities in Michigan— uh, dealing with poverty, dealing with uh, struggles of being a city and providing all the services. So let's give them a, some tools to spur that economic development. It's hard to give that a passing grade given what we see what's that's happening, whether you talk about Detroit or Flint or Muskegon or many other cities. Bottom line is the tax policy is only one part of the bigger equation in and, and there's only so much you can do with tax policy. Yeah. Bottom line, the city has to be better. What I say, you know, I'm, I'm an athlete, a re- recovering athlete. It just has to be better at blocking and tackling to make the city an attractive place to be, whether you're talking about the residents want to be here or the businesses want to be here. Are you safe? Is there a place to a park to take your kids? Is there, uh, you know, good schools for them to learn in? All that type of stuff. And that's going to create the demand 
So it's it's a difficult juggling act in yeah. the big picture. Yeah, Eric, you, I, and T, I know, are all suffering from recovering athlete syndrome. So we won't <laughs> hold that against you. As we're speaking with Eric Lufer, president of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, a nonprofit research organization. Let's get into the numbers a little bit, because in the report you noted in 2022, foregone revenue caused by business-specific tax abatements, things like we're talking about. I saw a number that showed, what was it, $18 million? I mean, is there any way to determine what type of value the city and its residents extracted for that investment? And do we know whether any communities of interest were overserved or underserved by that investment? That's exactly the type of things we want to dig into in the second report. Okay, we, yeah. want to, we want to really dig into that. Part of the equation for Detroit, and we have 23 other cities in Michigan that levy a local income tax. So what you have to look at is not just how did the tax base grow and and how did employment grow, but is the city better off because all of those workers, whether you're Detroit residents or people coming from outside the city, are coming in and now paying that income tax. So on the one hand, it's like the grocery store having a sale. I'm going to mark down the price of of toilet paper, but you're going to come in and buy ketchup and bologna and three other things at full price. The city saying, I'm going to mark down the price of property taxes, but oh, by the way, you're going to pay the income tax and, and your employees are yeah. going to pay that. Yeah. When I think about economic impact, and, and we'll let you go here pretty soon, but I just, I always think that the federal government has so many more levers, so much more money, and then state governments, Michigan has so much more money, and then you get down to the local level, and Detroit has its challenges, but the amount of money sloshing through the city, sloshing through city council's pockets, it's much less. So when we're looking at the impact that a, a city like Detroit can have on its local economy, first of all, are there any unique challenges Detroit faces in Michigan legislatively as opposed to other big cities and like how much impact can we really expect the city to be able to do without assistance from the state or even the federal level? So I, I really put this on the state, yeah. right? So when you think about what you've heard out of the state for the last couple of years, let's bring an auto factory to um, the west side of the state up in Goshen. Let's do this you know, b- battery thing for the electric vehicles. What are they bringing to Detroit? Right. Where are they steering things into Detroit and Highland Park and Hamtramck and Inkster and Pontiac? All these communities that have been really hit hard by the social economic things that are going through them. So money is part of it, but part of it's just an attitude. Mm. Right. How do you lift the least among us so that we all prosper? Yeah. And, and if the state doesn't have that attitude, then Detroit's on its own doing the best it can and everything you just said is true. It just doesn't have that much resources or that much ability to influence everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, Eric, we're going to be looking forward to that second report. You make sure to let us know. And uh, Eric Lufer, pre- uh, president of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, thank you for joining us on the Metro. It's been my pleasure. Look forward to coming back. Coming up right here on the Metro, we'll hear about why actor Hill Harper is running for Senate in Michigan. You stay right there for the Metro. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. 
Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible, with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. It's 1019 WDET and specifically the Metro, your go-to source for the stories driving Detroit's news, arts, and culture. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. And much of our news is focused on the presidential primary race. But there's another really big race happening right now in Michigan. Michigan has an open Senate seat this year. And while Congress... Congress member Alyssa Slocken leads her next closest opponent by at least 38 points. There are still others competing for the seat. Hill Harper, an actor and a Democrat, is one of those candidates. Authentically Detroit podcast hosts Donna Givens-Davidson and Orlando Bailey sat down with Harper to hear about why he's running for Senate and the issues he's focusing on. This is about engaging people and letting them know exactly what they're voting for and also what they're going to get in return if they vote for me. I mean, that's the thing, you know, and and so I try to make it as plain as possible. You know, when I went to Harvard Law School, my constitutional law professor would hammer us about how the U.S. Senate is the most important body in all of politics. Uh, The judicial branch rules on the constitutionality of what the Senate passes. The executive branch either vetoes or signs into the law what the Senate passes. The House of Representatives, our 13 members, send Along a bill to the Senate, the Senate can change it, change the name, take everything out, completely change it. So if you're very reductive, those hundred folks sitting around that table decide where the $6.2 trillion annual federal budget goes and where those resources hit. And we don't have any representation of anyone fighting to get resources in, in for us. And when I say us, I'm talking about a big us, not right. just black us. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm talking about people who do not have lobbyists, people who do not are not represented by special interest groups, and people who do not have corporate PACs. And, and that is the vast majority of people, and that's why the vast majority of people have checked out of the process, because the only real decision most establishment status quo politicians are making from both parties – have to do with special interest money and big donors. Yes, I'm, I, I'm, round of applause. Okay, <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm really excited about this um, because, you know, it's about time. And you talked about being willing to use the seat, the Senate seat to really shake things up. That's right. And not to be somebody who's going along to getting along. You know, I think sometimes we measure diplomacy more than we measure justice. And I think justice has to come first. But I was looking at the Ooh, list of priorities. Wait, wait, that, that was, say that again. That was good. That was good. We measure diplomacy more than we measure justice. Because one of the things that I find out that I'm, that I'm finding in conversations where there is dissent, in conversations where there is pushback, we are forced, we are forced to hear about being civil and <laughs> like we have to we have to be civilized you know about wants, it you know who wants civility to... the slave owner you know who wants <laughs> civility the boss That's right. civility favors the powerful yeah civility says your voice your needs don't matter just go along to get along and so i'm not unnecessarily uncivil all the time but i think it's important <laughs> to speak on behalf of people who feel ignored who feel invisible right yeah. because you know there's anger and then we blame them and I, I say this again because I say it often, that the refrain, your ancestors died for the right to vote. 
our ancestors died for rights. Our ancestors died for power and access and opportunity and justice. They did not vote, die for the process of voting. That's right. When voting does not deliver the kinds of results that produce those things. That's exactly now, There was a time when people thought that. But I want to look at your list of priorities real quickly because you talked about the Senate budget. And I see climate justice. I'm down with that. Yes. That's Jobs and economic dignity. Yes. yes. In the filibuster. Heck yeah. Yes. Um, universal health care. Yes. Where's housing? Housing's right there. And so, so for me... Affordable housing is one of my top, top things. I'm not sure which list that, that okay, could be on the, right. website. the website. That could be, there's so many. That could be the website. The, there, there's so many issues that you can't list them all. And you have to talk about top lines. But so health care, number one cause of personal bankruptcy, health care, one third of all GoFundMe's health care related. Uh, GoFundMe is not a health plan. We have to solve the health care crisis. We get that. Uh, we go to then, you know, you skip to talk about public safety. Mm-hmm. Oh, we, you didn't mention that. That's a big thing for me. Oh, we got a right? lot of stuff. We, we got mention. so many things. But, <laughs> but where affordable housing comes through, because affordable housing runs through everything, including the Democratic voting process that we've been talking about. That was Democratic candidate Hill Harper speaking about the issues he's running on in his bid for the Senate. You can listen to the Authentically Detroit uh, podcast wherever you find your podcasts. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, joined by Tia Graham, who you just heard from there. And we've got so much more stuff coming up for you here on the Metro. In fact, a little bit later on, we are going to get a chance to hear a little bit about more about northern Michigan businesses and how they're adapting to climate change. But before we get into that story, Howard University's ice skating team is set to make history this weekend. The first historically black college's figure skating team will compete in its first intercollegiate competition. That's cool. Yeah. Adam Beard spoke with the team at Washington, D.C. In the middle of a small outdoor rink in Washington, D.C., Maya James and Cheyenne Walker are showing off their scratch spins. Arms above their head, they turn like a top, slowly at first before getting faster and faster. Both have been skating since the age of seven, but for James, growing up in Chicago, it wasn't always easy. Because it wasn't many people that looked like me doing it. So when I would go to a new rink, or even sometimes in my home rink, I'll be the only black person on the ice. And it kind of felt like this eyes were on me. Cheyenne Walker had a much better experience getting into the sport in New York. I was fortunate enough to be in figure skating in Harlem, which was unique of its kind because it was an organization for women of color. So I grew up seeing women of color and people of color skate and being present in the sport. But when it came time to go to college, Walker faced a tough choice. It was very difficult to figure out like whether I wanted to go to school and continue to skate or if I wanted to go to a school that I knew was meant for me. I ultimately ended up choosing Howard because Howard just felt like home when I visited it. It might have felt like home, but she was missing skating. So was James. She DM'd me and was like, I'm thinking about starting a club. So when Maya reached out to me, it just felt like fate. After a couple of months of paperwork, the Howard University ice skating team was born, with James as president and Walker as vice president. But that was the easy part. The biggest challenge has been finding ice time, says James. There's only one rink in D.C., and it's a little ways out from the Howard campus, 
and it's also closed for renovation right now. So for now, the team has to travel to neighbouring Maryland to train. And to teach brand new members how to skate, they grab an hour of time on this small public rink on Monday nights. It's a far cry from the resources some of the colleges they'll be facing this weekend have, Walker says. We're probably going to be competing against people who skate on the ice maybe two or three times a week. We didn't really have that opportunity to get consistent ice time until this semester, and it's only one month. That's one of the reasons James says they're not putting too much pressure on themselves for Saturday's competition. Since we're like a baby organization, I'm not too concerned with winning as of right now. But I'm just happy to be there, you know, and be included into the collegiate figure skating space. One of the team's coaches, Jordan McCreary-Graham, feels the same way. It's honestly going to be a challenge to just be on the same ice as collegiate skaters that are various levels will be an experience in itself. She admires what James and Walker have achieved. I went to an HBCU and I tried to recommend it and they're like, what? Black people don't skate? So having that actual thing in an HBCU is going to start a trend for other HBCUs to do it. That's not sunk in with Maya James yet. I don't think it's hit me yet how big it really is. I'm just happy that we actually were able to, you know, move this thing forward. This, like, small idea really turned into a big one. One that Cheyenne Walker hopes will leave a legacy. It's such an amazing thing to see how we're bringing people into the sport and really diversifying the sport. And at the end of the day, that's really what the goal is. Inspiring a new generation of black skaters all over America. Adam Bierne, NPR News, Washington. That was NPR's Adam Bierne speaking with women figure skaters at Howard University as this is the Metro on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, who is also joined by Tia Graham. And Tia, I heard you. I saw you vibing out a little bit to that story. Did you ever have designs growing up, imaginations of... Ice skating? Is that something that Of came course. Up? As a young girl, a yeah. little girl, I wanted to ice skate, figure skate. I wanted to do gymnastic as well. But I I mean, I'm a tall person, as you can tell. I'm tall. Yes. So that wasn't going to work for me. I yeah. could tell when I saw that you had to duck just to get just in here Just to get here in here, you know? I'm like, that's Seven impressive. Seven feet tall. Yeah. I'm like an Amazon. But either way, I knew I couldn't do that and pursue that career. But it's really amazing to see and hear uh, young black women doing something for the first time and seeing it happening at an HBCU. It's really, really inspiring. So I'm hoping that a new generation of black skaters pops up and crops up and as well i hope that there's more connection within the uh, uh the skating universe i guess you can say more diversity sure well we do know that like skating it's a lot of uh moves that we would find in dancing and i know yes. the detroit windsor dance academy is celebrating its 40th anniversary mm-hmm. we're going to hear a little bit later from the co-founder and artistic director about that but before we get there Uh, Winter activities bring billions of dollars to Michigan every year. But this year's warmer weather has been tough on businesses and events in northern Michigan. Climate reporter Izzy Ross takes a deep dive into how Michigan businesses are working to adapt to a warmer world. Hi. It's around 8 a.m. on an early February morning at Mount Holiday, a small ski lodge in Traverse City. It's quiet inside the rustic hall overlooking the slopes. Executive Director Jim Pearson warns me not to be scared if I see a chipmunk running around. I'm trying to chase him out all since I got here. He's a elusive little guy. <laughs> no we walk over to the window that looks out on the slopes. Snow is still clinging to some of the hills, surrounded by streaks of brown earth. On this day, highs are supposed to reach around 50 degrees. It used to be we would use 
um, the snow guns to add to what Mother Nature gave us, and now it's like the complete opposite, where we have to rely more on the man-made snow. So obviously that's a lot of ground to cover, you know. It's been a little very uh, challenging. Warmer winters have prevented Mount Holiday from fully operating over Christmas break for five out of the last six years due to poor snow conditions. That used to be a big moneymaker. This year, Pearson says they've talked about shutting down for the season. We've had those discussions. <laughs> um, I've not given up yet. One of the challenges, and we'll go this way, is we try to preserve what snow we had. So for... In some cases, that's easier to do than others. So this is usually what we would see in late April. Outside, he points to uneven snow cover on the hills. Now they do more tubing, which requires less snow. And they're hoping colder weather will come to let the snow guns do their work. There's one right down here at the bottom. That's the super puma, yeah. And then we've got those yellow ones you can barely see over there. They use hundreds of gallons of water a minute when they're all firing. When it's cold enough, Mount Holiday has crews operating them in shifts, sometimes 24 hours a day, trying to keep snow on the ground. Pearson says larger ski resorts with better equipment can keep their guns going and stay open through the warm spells. But Mount Holiday doesn't have that luxury. We put a pause on the, the skiing of that hill, trying to preserve it until well, we hoped to, cold temperatures were going to come this week, and they didn't come until, until next week now. It's been a bad winter all around. Iconic sled dog races like the UP200 and Tequamanon have been canceled, and the state shut down fishing for sturgeon on Black Lake. Winters in northern Michigan and in the upper Midwest in general are warming and becoming shorter due to climate change. Meteorologist Lauren Casey works for the nonprofit Climate Central. To understand the difference between weather and climate, Casey says we can think of weather as news and climate as history. Attribution science helps determine the role of climate change in making weather events more frequent and intense, including temperatures. I was a broadcast meteorologist before moving to Climate Central two years ago, and that would be kind of the narrative, like you can't tie one specific event to climate change. That has all changed with the evolution of attribution science, and it continues to get more advanced like every day. <laughs> um, so now we can correlate certain events and the impact that climate change has had on it. Her organization has a climate shift index, which shows how much climate change influences temperatures on a given day. In Traverse City, on the day I talked to Jim Pearson at Mount Holiday, the index showed that climate change has made those warmer temperatures three times more likely. Winter recreation brings in billions of dollars to Michigan's economy each year. Michigan has the second most ski areas in the country. In 2020, the Great Lakes Business Network estimated that the economic impact of winter activities was around $3 billion. So it is unfortunate for a lot of those businesses that do rely on the winter season and those activities. And obviously, that takes a big hit. Leah Robinson is with the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. But our businesses are very resilient and have learned over the years that relying on one specific season or activity not necessarily the best way to go about things. As some businesses grapple with what to do, the state is trying to shore up the damage from the warm weather. They even sent out an email offering ideas for other activities, shore fishing, stargazing, birding, 
a cold water plunge in the East Grand Traverse Bay. Back at Mount Holiday, Pearson says they're continuing to shift their focus as well. Ropes courses, frisbee golf, um, maybe using the chairlift in the summertime to bring people up and down, fall color tours. So anything that we can add that brings people out here to enjoy. I mean, we have 45 acres of land and we're connected to about another 100 and 140 that East Bay Township acquired. So there's trails, there's hiking, there's biking, there's activities that we can provide, and so we're going to try and do all those things. All that, he says, is part of leaning on the other seasons instead of just hoping for good winters ahead. I'm Izzy Ross. That was climate reporter Izzy Ross reporting on how northern Michigan businesses have had to adapt to climate change. You're listening to The Metro, your daily source for news, arts, and culture driving the city and our region. I'm Nick Austin, joined by Tia Graham. And coming up, the Detroit Windsor Dance Academy is celebrating its 40th anniversary. We'll hear from the co-founder and artistic director coming up next on The Metro. Listening to the Metro on 1019 WDET, helping you discover Detroit beyond the headlines. Discover Detroit beyond the headlines and bringing you the voices and visions that are driving the city forward. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. Now, dance is a critical part of the way we express ourselves. That's especially true in the city of Detroit. I mean, there are all kinds of dances taking place in and around the city, including tango, salsa, jitting or footwork belly dance, jazz and funk, and ballet. And now one of the oldest dance studios in Detroit uh, is turning 40 this year. That is the Detroit Windsor Dance Academy. To talk about the past 40 years of dance and the studio's upcoming annual Black History Month concert, we have the Academy's co-founder and artistic director here, Deborah White-Hunt. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so talk about what it means for you to have the Detroit Windsor Dance Academy celebrating its 40th year. It's just a celebration. It's amazing. It's just so exciting because you think about the fact that 40 years has passed and it's amazing, you know, and to think about all the lives that we've been able to interact with and and just, you know, be a part of. Mm-hmm. It's just beautiful. And I think about the name Detroit Windsor. Where'd the name come from? Where'd you get that idea? <clears throat> There's a long story and a short story. I'll tell you the short story. <laughs> but really, Detroit Um, Windsor, Detroit and Windsor are cities, and we celebrate the international sister city. And there are not many places in the world you can go to be able to do that. So we wanted our students to know that there's another country right nearby. And when we would travel, you know, different places in the world, they would be a little, you know, nervous or scared. And I said, just think of it as the Windsor next door. It's no different. And so we celebrated that way. I love that so mm-hmm. much is growing up in the city and just knowing that fact as a young kid, like I live near an international border crossing, right. which is something that not a lot of people get to experience. Exactly. So to have that in your mind, in your back pocket as you move forward through the world is a big thing. Yes, it is. And so I think about the Detroit Windsor Dance Academy and uh, and how did you get it started? What, what were some of the things? Of course, you wanted to be in connection with Windsor and the sister cities. But what was what was your main motivator? 
to have an opportunity for young people to dance. Mm -hmm. I was a school teacher, uh, and I am a retired Detroit public school teacher, and I was always being bumped whenever the funds were cut. Mm -hmm. The funds were always cut. So I was bumped around here and there, and I met a group of students one year, and we just really bonded, and we wanted to continue after the summer, and I didn't know where I'd be, and true enough, I I was not assigned back to Bates, and so my husband, Bruce Hunt, who's the executive director, he said, well, I found a space for you guys, and we got together and had little classes, so when it was time to go back to work, it's like, well, what do we do now? And we just kept dancing. <laughs> and here we are 40 years later. I love that dance mm. just kept you going and kept you motivated. Yes. And, you know, that's what dance does for so many people. It kind of just gives you life. Yes, it does. So the first event of the year is the annual Black History Month concert, More Precious Than Rubies. Talk about what this show is about and what it means to you. Okay, it's a celebration of dance, of our culture, of Black history. And it's also an opportunity to engage some of our artistic community. We have a showing and unveiling of eight artists that created original art works of art, six by eight feet, that will be a part of the Detroit Windsor Dance Academy for the children so that they can see beautiful artwork all the time they're dancing. I love it. And so the show is tomorrow from 5.30 to 7 p.m. It's happening at the Detroit School of Arts. It is. How can people get tickets? Well, let me go back a minute. Oh, the yeah. reception is from 5.30 to 6.30 for the artist. Mm-hmm. And then the concert starts at 7. Mm-hmm. So you can get tickets online at dwda.ludus.org. And... Go to our website. You can also, um, you know, hit that button, Detroit Windsor with a D, dance.org. And last question to you before I let you go and get prepared for tomorrow, because I know you still have a lot <laughs> that you have to do to get prepared. Yeah. What are the other plans that you all have for the Academy this year? It's just February. You got a whole, uh, what, uh, 10 months to go. Yes, we're planning our crystal ball gala, which will be exciting where we can dress up and let our hair down, take it out of the buns. <laughs> <laughs> we we will have um, our, our summer camp, which is a wonderful one-month camp. It's all-day camp. So the children can, you know, just uh, be away from home in an artistic environment. And they have a big concert at the end. We have um, uh, this event. It's called Shoe Decoration. We have point shoes and tap shoes that will be able to be decorated by the community and hung on our walls. And it's one other thing I was thinking about this morning. Uh, what's the fourth thing? Oh, we're having a dancer IQ spelling bee. Oh. Um, it's very important that our dancers learn the art science of dance yeah. as well as the spirit. And they must know their vocabulary words because it's very, very important that I learned, you know, in my journey of dance. So they get to go um, in front of everyone. Excuse me, and show everyone how they know their words, their vocabulary, their French words. They can spell them. 
I love that because I often think about when people get into certain aspects of of, of, of of creativity, they often, you know, you were just, you're a good dancer, you should do that. Or you're a good actor, you should do mm-hmm. that. But the, it takes a little bit more than just oh, yes. being talented. There's a foundation. And we want to create, you know, teachers as well. And they need to know their stuff. Mm-hmm. And then our annual concert will be in June. All right. Deborah White Hunt is the co-founder and artistic director of Detroit Windsor Dance Academy. Thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Thank you. This was fun. It was nice to be here. Yay. Yay. You're listening to The Metro, the new show connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, arts, culture, and apparently dance affecting the city and our region like you just heard. Coming up, we'll hear about a Black History Month-themed comedy show that's happening in Ontario this weekend. But first, on this day in history, we take a look at a tragic event that occurred 59 years ago today as Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965 today before giving a speech in New York City. But while he wasn't living in our state, Michigan played a pivotal role in the civil rights leader's life and especially Detroit. Malcolm X called himself a Detroiter and married one, Dr. Betty Shabazz. He proposed to her for a, from a Detroit gas station payphone. Before he was Malcolm X, he was Malcolm Little. When he was just three years old, Earl and Louise Little moved Malcolm and his siblings to Lansing in 1928, escaping racial violence from the Ku Klux Klan in Omaha, Nebraska. Earl moved the family to East Lansing while he built a home two miles outside of town. In September of 1931, Earl's body was found crushed on the streetcar tracks. His death was ruled a suicide, but it's long been speculated that he was murdered by the Black Legion. Later in life in 1953, Malcolm became an assistant minister of the Nation of Islam's Temple No. 1, first located on Hastings Street in Black Bottom. From there, his work with the Nation of Islam and as an activist took off. The group's leader, Elijah Muhammad, took Malcolm under his wing. He soon moved to Boston to lead Temple No. 11. Malcolm X would often return to Detroit. In 1963, Malcolm gave a speech to 400 people at Wayne State University's State Hall. The auditorium is now named after him. In a section from the speech, we'll hear Malcolm X explain his decision to leave the Black Muslim movement. I might say this before I sit down. If you recall, when I left the Black Muslim movement, I stated clearly that it wasn't my intention to even uh, uh, continue to be aware that they existed, but that I was going to spend my time working in the non-Muslim community, but they were fearful that if they didn't do something, that perhaps many of those who were in the mosque would leave it and uh, follow a different direction. So they had to start doing a takeoff on me, plus they had to try and silence me because they, of what they know that I know. And uh, I, I should think that they should know me well enough to know that they certainly can't frighten me. <clears throat> but when it does come to the light, you still need to keep coughing like that, but I got some of that smoke last night. But it, uh, it, there are some things involving the black Muslim movement, which when they come to light, you, you will be shot. The thing that you have to understand where those of us in the black Muslim movement were concerned, all of us believed 100% in the divinity of Elijah Muhammad. We believed in him. We actually believed that God had taught him, right here in Detroit, by the way, that God had taught him and all of that. Because, and I always thought that he believed in himself. 
And I was shocked when I found out that he didn't, he himself didn't believe it. And when that shock reached, its, reached me, then I began to uh, look everywhere else and try to get a better understanding of the things that confront all of us so that we can get together in some kind of way to offset it. He was killed one week later before a speech in New York City. It's still not known who killed Malcolm X. He told interviewer Gordon Parks that the Nation of Islam was trying to kill him days before his death. It's long been speculated that they were involved. For further reading on his life, we recommend checking out the autobiography of Malcolm X. It was written in collaboration with journalist Alex Haley and published nine months after he died. This is The Metro on 101.9 WDET, your daily source for news, arts, and culture, all the things you need to know in your day driving the city forward. Coming up on The Metro, we'll get into something a little funny. Nick, we're going to get into some jokes. We're going to get into some comedy. Oh, you got jokes, huh? I, I do have. You made me laugh out loud on that one. <laughs> laugh out loud. So we do have jokes coming up after this. Uh, just stay right tuned for The Metro. Listening to The Metro, the new show connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, art, and culture affecting the city and our region. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. Now, here at WDET, we like to laugh. Actually, we love to laugh. Every year, Ryan Patrick Cooper and WDET put on a summer comedy show at the Old Miami to highlight and support the comedy community here in Metro Detroit. However, there's a Black History Month event happening across the border that has direct ties to the city of Detroit. The February edition of the Ford City Funnies Comedy Show is a Black History-themed uh, a show as well. Happening this Saturday, February 24th, the event will feature all Detroit-born comedians. Joining the show now is Mark Olenijuk, the organizer of the Ford City Funnies Comedy Show, and Bella Hugley. Detroit native and one of the featured comedians in this weekend show. Actually, Bella has not joined just yet, but we do have Mark. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Hey, how's everybody doing today? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Super excited to have you on the show. And just jumping in, what is so special about expanding the comedy community and connecting with multiple communities as you're going to do with this show? This is this is just wonderful. It's a uh, great Black History event we've got going on, and then we're also incorporating talented people from Windsor, Detroit, and then Bella's actually flying in from Georgia, mm. and um, she grew up in the Detroit area, and it's going to be also her first time performing for family and friends back in the, shall we say, you know, Windsor, Detroit area, because she took up comedy when she moved out to just outside Atlanta. So it's a uh, homecoming, so to speak, and um, T-Barb's our headliner. And a lot of people are familiar with T-Barb and some of the great things she does. And um, 
Also at T-Barb, she's got the only in Detroit on Instagram, and uh, you know, that's, that's a popular series in itself. <laughs> it is, Mark. I, I, I'm one of the followers of that uh, po- uh, the social media site. I follow it all the time. It's one of the funniest things because it's all local-based things that she's commenting on, and it's really, really funny. So I think about having T-Barb, and I think about some of the Detroit uh, comedians. Why the Detroit connection? I know that we're just across the border. I know that you're trying to uh, um, um, connect that community there, but why Detroit? There's a lot of talented comedians, music artists, and I just wanted to tap into that. Um, I've known T-Barb for a while. Uh, Bella and I actually met through social media, and we had been discussing trying to get something lined up. So this kind of all just kind of came together and the stars aligned that I was able to get everybody's schedules, you know, to mesh and so forth. And then we also have Sean Townsend hosting and he's got ties to Detroit and Windsor. He currently resides in Windsor, but grew up in Detroit. So it's, it's really nice to kind of have that whole border city connection going on. I love that. And Bella has connected. Bella, how are you doing today? Hey guys. Oh my gosh. The conversation was getting really juicy. I love it. <laughs> so Bella, you're a Detroit native. You're traveling back to this area. Uh, what are you looking forward to being back in the, being back in this area? Uh, Coney Island, yes. number one. Uh, I am definitely like really hungry for Detroit uh, foods. I know it sounds super random, but um, I'm, I'm just really happy to be uh, eating the foods that um, I work so hard to, <laughs> to not eat when I'm here. <laughs> I love that so much. I always think when I'm away from home, I need a Coney. I need a, a Coney dog. Yeah. So um, so when I'm thinking about some of the things, uh, I think about what is one thing you learned about yourself in comedy being away from Detroit? Um, I, I, We're always the underdog. I'm always the underdog. Um, I didn't realize that until I got to like a, a bigger city. Um, and, you know, to this day, I'm still not sure if Atlanta is slower or if Detroit's faster or maybe I'm just kind of stuck in the middle somewhere. I'm not sure. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm, I'm learning that I don't mind being the underdog. Um, I feel like people from Detroit, we work a little bit harder. Um, and we just kind of we really do give it our all. And I can tell someone from Detroit a mile away. I am very <laughs> gifted in that way. I don't know what it is, but I can tell. Something about us. Yeah, yeah. well, Bella Hughley, this is Nick Austin jumping in on the conversation. You're the featured comedian at this upcoming show on Saturday, February 24th. And as the featured comedian, I need some expertise from your uh, comedy chops because I'm hilarious. And I drop jokes on people all the time in wonderful environments like at the grocery store, for example. And whenever I drop my punchlines on these random people, for some reason, they don't laugh at me. So what recommendations would you have for someone in my circumstance? Uh, well, let me just say tequila always works. Um, so, you know, putting that <laughs> I out agree. There. Yeah, um, it almost always works. But in those cases, um, start at home, mm. you know, family and, and friends first and just kind of work your way up. Um, I feel like if you can send your order back to the restaurant after they make an, an error with it, you can do stand-up. Yeah. I don't think it's very hard at all. <laughs> That's good training at the ground level. Great advice. I do appreciate that as we are speaking again with uh, about this event that's coming up here. And, you know, before I toss it back to Tia, I want to loop you back in, Mark, because you're organizing this show. You know, for some people, they would probably think organizing a show like this is just as easy as calling up some funny people and getting them in. What are some of the things that go into like that you're thinking about when you're putting a show of this caliber together? Try to basically have a nice transition between the comedians that everything kind of has a really cool flow to it. I'm also um, just trying to see like, you know, what else will appeal to, you know, 
folks in this area. And then being in Windsor, you know, you, you, we can tap into the Detroit market, and that's one of the things I've been able to do. So, you know, we can pull people in um, that want to come out and have a great night that maybe want to come out and have dinner in Windsor and then also check out some comedy. So you kind of, you know, just try to have that balance that everything just kind of lines up. And I'm, like I said, we've got an all-star lineup Saturday night, so we're excited. And, Mark, why is this event especially important, especially during Black History Month? Like, what was the connection there in a tie to do this? It actually came up in a discussion that I was having with Sean Townsend and myself of just kind of giving back to the community. And um, the Freedom Museum in Amherstburg, they've got some wonderful stories to tell and also provide education um, to people. To people from you know here, and then also people that are coming in to visit and learn more about the museum and other stories, and it's just great that we're, you know we'll have that opportunity to donate some of the proceeds from Saturday and allow them to continue some of the great programming that they have. All right, Mark Olenichuk is the organizer of the February edition of the Ford City Funnies Comedy Show happening this Saturday, February twenty fourth. Bella Hughley is a native Detroiter and one of the featured comedians in this weekend show. A proceed, a portion of the proceeds raised from the event will be donated to the Amherstburg Freedom Museum in Ontario, Canada. I want to say thank you both for joining us on the Metro. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, joined by Tia Graham. Tia, comedy, comedians, something that I respect a lot, because just getting up on stage with nothing but a microphone in your hand, trying to make people laugh, that's a bear, that's difficult. So shout outs to all you comedians out there. Indeed, indeed. And you know, one of the local comedians we have here at the station is uh, Ryan Patrick Cooper. Ryan Patrick Cooper in the groove. Comedian. Yeah, Ryan, say something funny, man. What you got? Do My it. God. Now. <laughs> I can't help it, Ryan. The beef is real. <laughs> so today on In the Groove, uh, I'm very excited to show off why we're called In the Groove. You know, that comes from the idea, talking to people from all walks of life about the music that has influenced them. And I'm excited to have Miriam Khan, the chef behind Kana Detroit, Pakistani street food, uh, kind of talk about some of the influence of music on her cooking growing up and how that music actually makes it on to the plate ahead of her frame hazel park dinner coming up on friday so lots of great new music of course tickets to see vampire weekend and we're going in the groove with Kana detroit guys very excited about it a very tasty edition of in the groove happening at noon today that's going to do it for us though on the metro this february 21st edition you can listen to recent episodes online at wdet.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform the show is produced by sam corey and david lyons and jack philbrandt our technical director is nate bender and music by sam bobian our news director is Jerome Vaughn, and our program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. If you like what you hear and want to support the Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org donate. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you tomorrow. Once again, this is WDTFM, Detroit Public Radio, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Everyone, have a great, what, what's today, Wednesday? Have a great Wednesday. Have a great whenever you're listening. Yeah. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.